The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Yes, Nicola Talland is with me on the Soapbox at 6 today. She's host of uh, the Crime World podcast and the investigations editor as well at the Sunday World. Nicola, it's good to talk to you. Thanks a million for coming into studio. We are going to talk a bit about um, cocaine. Um, I know you've got these upcoming shows in that regard and we'll have all of the detail on them in in just a moment. Um, It's not a new drug in this country, um, you know, and and, uh, people will be well used to the, the, the tale of its pr- proliferation. Is there a point in time though you can go back to and say this is when it not necessarily when it arrived here but when it kind of exploded on the scene when it became a problem drug? Luckily I was only going through some of this last night for something else I'm doing and you can see at the beginning of the 1990s cannabis is the most sort of widely used drug in the country heroin obviously is there you've had the first epidemic you're coming into the second one. Um, ecstasy arrives and it is really what opens the doors for cocaine. Okay. It's starting to come in like sort of the 80s, the early 90s, but it's sort of still seen at that point as a drug for the high society classes. Um, I don't think they took long to see the potential for it. And I suppose the use of ecstasy, which was, you know, it, it, there was a whole new customer base there. People who probably would never have gone for opiates or anything like that saw this recreational fun drug and cocaine came in the back of that. So there was a customer base there for it. And it's been growing ever since. And so suddenly you had um, not just a market who wouldn't have otherwise used drugs, but a market who could convince themselves they weren't really drug users as mm, well. You know, exactly. that's kind of a feature of cocaine. It's, I'm not a drug user, just a bit of coke at That's weekends. exactly it. Because, of course, you know, most heroin addicts are very, you know, they're tragic. They're unwell. Um, they're not proud of that. You know, they'll hide down alleyways to, to shoot up and, you know, they're people largely with sort of, you know, probably issues in their background, most of them. Whereas cocaine is seen as the drug of successful people. It's something that they use on a night out and they go back into their high powered jobs on the Monday morning, you know. Um, so it has all that. But I think probably as well what you had in the 90s was this sort of Ireland was shaking off its shackles of poverty Mm. of the past and you had employment starts to rise big time in the 90s. It continues to rise up to the millennium and you've lots of people with lots more money in their pocket and quite simply it was the perfect storm. As we entered the new millennium then you'll see the start of the feud centred on cocaine turf. So this kind of perverse pride that, you know, we could take the same drug that the stockbrokers in the city of London or on Wall Street were taking. Well this is it and I mean you're talking everybody, construction workers, everybody had more money in their pockets and uh, that's really what did it. I mean the thing about cocaine is as well it's got a double market, it's got the sort of users that will take it all week, all day long, whatever and then you have this surge of business at the weekends, which is the the recreational users. So So is it now kind of classed as it just exists right across society? Is that where we're at? Yeah, absolutely. It it definitely does. It knows no social boundaries. It's probably the world's most socially inclusive drug. Um, And it has this cool image. It always has. And, you know, when I talked there about, you know, heroin addicts probably hiding away their illness, uh, which a lot of it is, Cocaine, you'll see it been taken quite openly and quite proudly. You mm. know, I mean, there's lots of reports of people just taking it off their the back of their hand in a pub or a club. No problem. 
Yeah, and, and I, I would wager as well, and I kind of, this is anecdotal just from conversations you'd have, people would be much quicker to admit taking it. You know, they'd say, and, and not that they necessarily take it all the time, but people would, if they had taken it, say, yes, I've tried it. People are much more reluctant to admit maybe in kind of, uh, in Harder civil drugs. company, yeah, mm. I've, I've, I've shot up with heroin, I've mainlined yeah. heroin once or twice. Yeah, there's no shame attached to it no. whatsoever. And that's the difference with it really. And, you know, as a product, you know, it, it, it's been, nobody's marketed it, but yet it is the ultimate consumer product really. Yeah. You know, it's, it's got a huge profit margin. It can multiply in value 500 times as it crosses the Atlantic into Europe and where there's a very willing, you know, market. Mm. And in the kind of the 90s then, as it became more and more popular in Ireland, who was bringing it in? Was it was it a range of different criminal gangs? Were there one or two who were really put on the strings? Yeah, you saw in the 90s as well, I suppose, the first proper migration of some of the big drug lords to Europe to sort of base themselves in Amsterdam, the European drug supermarket. They made their connections directly with the the. Colombians. And you have certainly two very significant groupings in Europe who are supplying Ireland and the UK, but there's an open market there. Anybody who wants to get in on dealing has, you know, a wholesaler in Europe. So all of that kind of really Hmm. sort of went hand in hand. And is it from this that the Kinnahans emerge? Or when, when, when do they become a big player on the scene? Then... Exactly then, you know, towards the end of the 90s, mid to late 90s, by the new millennium, they have bases in Amsterdam, in Belgium and in Spain. And they're very much making a lot of money actually on cannabis initially. Mm. They were shipping it over from Morocco, landing it on the beaches of Spain and driving it up through Europe. Um, But yeah, cocaine really made them the big money. And what was the the path? What were the the kind of the the transport logistics of cocaine, getting it? into people's hands or people's noses in Ireland? They get it in any which way. You know, shipping obviously is for the big bulk loads. Uh, We saw there late last year, Mm. the MV Matthew and two tonnes of cocaine on that. Um, Those, that's become more and more as the kind of, I suppose, as the demand has grown and the supply has grown, we're seeing a lot more of those massive shipments coming in through the ports of Rotterdam, Antwerp. Um, And look, they'll fly it, they'll, take it in their stomachs, whatever. I mean, we had a, a recently a kind of a, a young enough uh, dealer who would have been coming of age around then identifying a market in Australia where it's four times more expensive to buy Coke in Australia. So he set up a network of human mules to mainly females to take it, you know, across that far. Like, you know, how long is that journey? Is it probably 24 hours? Yeah. They carried it internally and he had a network then who sold it and made, he made four times, you know, his money. The MV Matthew, I mean, that that was um, a huge operation, a very successful operation. And it's probably impossible to answer this exactly, but to what degree do authorities or can they put a dent in, in those supplies. So the um, the drugs from the MV Matthew were coming from a crew called the Clan del Golfo, a big cartel. And so we got two tonnes of it, right? Yeah. And they're shipping 20 tonnes a month uh, into Europe. So, okay. Right. So it's a little bit of a drop in the ocean as such, but at the 10% same time... 10% of, of one month's Of one month's supply. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, a drop in the ocean, perhaps, but at the same time, what would it be like if we were doing nothing? You mm. know, 
And there's constant efforts and I think Europe is becoming better at working together, at sharing their intelligence. Constant efforts to dismantle these crews and, you know, you can see how long it's taking for the Kinahan operation to be fully dismantled. Yeah. You know, we're into year seven, eight now and still, you know, the government are pushing forward in the hopes of extraditing um, the key members. And as the Kinahans, as their power or, or maybe fades or it wanes a little bit or they lose their grip on the on the market in Ireland, I mean, I assume it, that the kind of nature abhors a vacuum applies and somebody else just comes along and does it. Yeah, it kind of causes chaos. For a while, have, is that yeah, it? Yeah, it does cause chaos. You have, you see a lot of feuding there going on and some of the, you know, Kulak maybe, but there was a bit in Finglas, there's feuding going on and that would be sort of... A, you know, a fight for turf, really. Sometimes it can be just personal gripes between very volatile young criminals that gets completely out of control. But by and large, as you saw the dismantlement of the Kinahan cartel here, and they have been dismantled in this country, Mm. um, they're still shipping, by the way, and still wholesaling. But their actual operation here has been dismantled. Um, but so you, they are now reliant on other gangs in Ireland. Well, they don't care about Ireland anymore. Oh, they, right, that's okay. so big, you know. Wow. They, they're just shipping. They're actually um, currently in bed with Iranian and Russian regimes, um, you know, as sort of fixers between the South Americans. They've just become like a logistics company, they've effectively. Become, I mean, they are um, like they are a, a living movie, like really, or a yeah. you know, narco series. It's It's extraordinary to see the ambition of them and to think like at the beginning of my career, they were a lot of them street dealers, you know, and they went from that to billionaires, you know, over the course of two decades. That's amazing. Um, Like, is there a consensus as to whether it is better to tackle this problem from the supplier, the demand side? Yeah, the logic of people don't like the idea of kind of criminalising end users. And at the same time, there's an argument that if you don't get rid of demand, somebody will always find a way of, of providing supply. Look, I think human beings are going to take drugs, aren't they? They, they just are. I'm, you, you sort of, I suppose, have to work on the demand side with education um, and trying to make people connect where their money's going. Because it is going straight up the ladder to the hands of the Kinahans, and and then there is a, there's a kind of a psychological disconnect, isn't there? There's a huge there's disconnect. Like, this there is a kind because, of a, yeah. a, a a blameless drug to take. I mean, when you start talking about the you know this this you know every deal on the street in Dublin actually funding wars against the West, that's probably just way too big for people to consider. But you could take it back maybe a little bit to some of the recent shootings, um, you know, and some of the violence that we've seen, you know, a, a, a Christmas Eve in a restaurant in um, in Dublin, the, you know, the horrors that people saw there. And that's much closer to home. And yet still, I think what you have is a problem that a lot of users don't live in the communities actually affected by it. Mm. So they can go home and close the door and yeah. it's not outside. Yeah, I mean, it, it's closer to home than kind of Tehran pulling the yeah. the, the, the strings of, of militant groups around the world. It's not it's not in their living room, it's though. It's not in their living room, exactly. Mm. Now, at the same time, like, you know, there is definitely people say that cocaine is a recreational drug. It's appears to be very addictive. I mean, the addiction services would say they're getting just mainly cocaine users in. Yeah. Cocaine users who started using drugs in their 60s 
Well, we literally have a text in. It just came in. We yeah. recently had a Christmas party, uh, come birthday party, and there was our lads in their 60s and some in their mid-70s openly going into the toilets to use cocaine. They thought it was brilliant fun. Yeah. You see, that is happening as well. And it has crept, of course, into every corner of rural Ireland where you maybe have a little bit of loneliness, don't you? And you have a little bit of issues like that in in among certain populations and probably single men, older men. Mm. Um, maybe it gives a bit of confidence when they're out trying to talk to somebody and that kind of thing. I think that might, might be addictive then. That becomes addictive, yeah. that, that feeling. Uh, it's, it's fascinating stuff and I wish we could keep talking about it. But if people at home do want to hear you talk more about it, you've got this series um, uh, going around the country to different places, Cocaine Cowboys with Nicola Talent, The Deadly Rise of Ireland's Drug Lords, Limerick, Cork and Dublin, uh, the first three events, Limerick on the 10th of February. And if people want to find out more, mcd.ie. Perfect, yeah. mcd.ie is uh, the website. If you want to hear Nicola talking about this in uh, much more detail, it is fascinating stuff. Uh, Nicola Talent, thanks a million for joining us. Thank you very much. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.